the only the only way to go. <laughs> that, that bear, he's life. <laughs> I love him. I love him. All right. Well, why don't we get started? So, welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each episode, we'll be nerding out about all aspects to the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host Greg. This week, we'll be discussing Sugar's File Under Easy Listening, released in 1994 on Creation Records. And also yeah. on Ryko, right, Greg? Yeah, Ryko in the U.S. Um, and Creation in the U.K., which I don't think I even knew that it had any ties to Creation until maybe like 10 years ago. Yeah. Because, spoiler alert, we're in the U.S., Right. <laughs> so it was always like, like Ryko, because if you remember, you know, back then we got CDs and Ryko, all their CDs had that. That bluish. Yep. Yeah, it was really cool. But we'll, I guess more on that later, right? <laughs> um, so before we get into the record, obviously, we're eager to talk about this one. So just some quick bookkeeping. Thanks as always to everyone who's been listening, following along, engaging on our social media. As a friendly reminder, we're now on iTunes and other streaming services, and we're officially on Spotify. We made it, folks. Um, please feel free to like and subscribe and uh, rate our podcast. Yeah, please. Apparently it does. I don't know what it does, but if you rate it and like review it, it helps get it out there and um, I guess will help us to get some pretty cool guests in the future yeah. for um, interviews and whatnot. So yeah, rate, subscribe, like, whatever it is podcasts do. So some corrections. Do we have any corrections? I, I don't, don't think so. No. Yes, we do. I, but the problem is, is since it's a pronunciation, I don't know how to correct it, but um, Matt pointed out that I pronounced the old bass player of sick of it all's name wrong okay <laughs> so, gotcha. again like i don't know how to pronounce it so i'm very sorry rich we'll call him rich sick of it all gotcha uh, from uh, from here on in <laughs> there you go um, there you go we'll do better next time so another there's another announcement um we have a couple announcements um mm -hmm. one is that in some husker related news there's a band, I've never heard of them until this, called Inter Arma. They're a black metal band, and they're on Relapse Records, who has a lot of cool stuff. And they just released uh, this past, well, by the time you hear this, it was July 10th, 2020. They released a covers album, and they do The Girl Who Lives on Heaven Hill. And it, it's pretty cool. They make it just sound like a black metal song, but you can still hear that melody coming through yeah i think it just like really speaks to what a wide reach husker du has yeah i agree like i i wouldn't you know some some bands aren't surprising when they cover or tip the hat but this was a bit of a surprise but it was a cool surprise yeah yeah there's also a new bob song um off uh blue hearts he released another single called, it's called forecasts of rain it's awesome I think this record is just going to be like a total like beast or redo like. Yeah. Cause this one's not as aggressive, but it's still like dark. It has, yeah. um, it's more, it's more almost like a black sheets of rain, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know, but it's, it's really short. In fact, I saw on his Facebook, Jason Narducci, who plays bass for Bob, 
he said that there's no intro, there's no outro. It's literally just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Cause it, it just like with, uh, American crisis, it like starts right out the gate. Yeah. You know, the vocals and everything start and, um, it's short, but it's, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. I would just say, if you haven't checked that one out, you definitely should. Well, maybe we should get onto the sugar record. Yeah. Yeah. Because this, this one, we got a lot, this one's, this is an important one for me. Yeah. Same. Um, it's an so, important one for our friendship. I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. This kind of started the whole, our obsession with uh, all things Bob mold. Yeah. Um, so that kind of answers, you know, why we're doing the record. This was my first uh, sugar album. I was, you know, like 13 in 1994. I know I mentioned before that I was watching 120 minutes. I realize now that I don't remember if it was believe what you're saying or your favorite thing. That was the video that, attracted me I, i'm i'd wager it was your favorite thing um because it's you know a little more upbeat and a little more what i was into at that time and you know got, i asked for christmas of 94 i asked my parents for uh, any husker do cd and i, I might have requested this specific sugar album or i might have just said any sugar album and um i got file under easy listening like like we talked about at the top of the episode, I still remember, you know, the Ryko disc, the tinted CD case, and it had one of those, like, I don't know what they call them, the cardboard, like where it flipped over the top, you know? Yeah, Which I don't that's know right. What, yeah, I don't know what the purpose of that was. It was just a waste <laughs> of paper. Right, it was just like a marketing, um, a marketing thing. But that was like a Ryko thing where it would have like a little, like, hype. Like, I guess instead of like a hype sticker, it had this, you know, yeah. Features these songs and blah blah yeah. blah. Because I think that same that same year for Christmas, I got uh David Bowie's Man Who Sold the World, right? Because the song was on um Nirvana's like MTV's Unplugged and it had all of the things that you described, those trademark features of the Reiko Disc repress or the Reiko Disc uh CDs with the like greenish tint jewel case and the like little um paper flap thing over the top. Which, which always was kind of, it was cool, but like for me who, you know, when I had CDs, now they're all gone, but when I had CDs, I was so anal about them. <laughs> like if, if a Ryko disc album, the case cracked. You I were in like, trouble. Oh man, I can't, I can't replace it. <laughs> Where am I going to find another mint green CD case? So my background with the record. So as Greg and I have talked about on this podcast before, we used to play in a band together and we would practice. My parents were super generous. We would practice in my parents' basement. Um, so after we would have practice, we would always go out to eat for dinner or maybe like we'd often go to a CD store. Um, so we were um, walking around the Deptford Mall shortly after we practiced, you know, one time in 2003 or four or something like that, probably getting ready for tour. Um, and we walked into a dollar store and Greg, like out of the corner of his eye, I remember it was in the bottom rack of uh, the dollar store. Greg was like, oh my God, there's a bunch of copies of Sugar's file under easy listening. It was probably easy to identify because of those green Ryko disc CD cases. And it was they had a bunch of copies that were a dollar and Greg was like, I'm buying a copy of this forever. I think you bought it for, if not everyone in the band, definitely for me and Fidge. Yeah. Um, Fidge I was figured, our drummer. Yeah. Great yeah, friend, figured, friend of the pod. Yeah. I figured that, um, 
I, I yeah, because I, I still can't believe that that was in the dollar store. <laughs> because because it was, I mean, for so many reasons that at that point it was nine or ten years old. Like it right. was just a weird thing to find. But yeah, it was it was uh, definitely the best thing you've ever seen in a dollar store. Yeah, it was awesome. It was awesome. Um, yeah, and that was something that we would always do uh, after band practice. Right? Was that we would always like we'd often go to the CD store. And one thing I loved so much was that Greg would always like seek out these like buried treasures for us. These like $3 CDs that were like, you know, things that we should own. Um, I keep bear in mind, this is before streaming services, right? So things that we should own that like, you know, we might not already have, or might not be like just already in our collection or something like that. Yeah. Some of those cut up in things. I mean, yeah. I've gotten so many, yeah. Like the handsome record, yeah. Um, you know the the last shift, like a lot of that post hardcore stuff that went to majors and and didn't do well, but they were great records. Even like seaweed, like all those things, yeah. You find really cheap, um, yeah. I wish that would happen with the vinyl. <laughs> I know, I know. I remember I got like Cardigan's first band on the moon. I got like um, uh, Veruca Salt's Eight Arms to Hold You. Um, yeah, tunes, tunes, tunes. Had, like tune both. Shout out to Tunes and Princeton Record Exchange too, which I don't, we didn't go, you know, we weren't near Princeton because we were more in South Jersey, but yeah. whenever I'd go there, they would have like budget CDs for a dollar and they would be like in pristine shape because they're probably just promos Yeah, and you know, so, so much gold. Yeah. I'm sure that if you went there, they had copies of Cop Blue, Beaster, <laughs> file under easy listening yeah maybe even besides yeah i already had them so it didn't it didn't matter but uh side a of this record in my mind is some of bob's best work i think side b is really great um but side a as we'll get into later is exceptional other thing about this record right kind of like you know the face of it i always love the mid-century modern album art this like 50 style like sort of like art deco kind of like pattern um my wife is a art director and graphic designer and she was like i think that is disgusting she hates it which is which is funny to me um so this was <laughs> the artwork was done by lou kriegel and in preparing for this rep uh, in preparing for this episode there is somebody who who did backup vocals on rem's bang and blame who goes by the name of lou kriegel and i'd be curious to learn a little bit more um, I'd imagine it could be the same person because he's based out of Athens where REM is. He also, uh, um, on Lou Kriegel's website, which has like some really awesome art. I really love it. Um, I would love to buy some someday, but uh, he has the, uh, the sugar record on there. And the caption from Lou Kriegel says, quote, Bob Mould saw my paintings in a restaurant in Athens in 1994 and used them for his album by sugar. Thanks, Bob. You made my year. Yeah, Bob, they, they definitely had ties to Athens. And, you know, Bob was friendly with R.E.M. from the Husker Du days. I think his partner at the time, who was also, I want to say, manager or tour manager, uh, Kevin, his longtime partner, I think he was, they were together from, if I remember from the book, like the very early 90s until maybe even the early 2000s. Um, he had ties to Athens. So that makes sense that they would use this Athens artist. Um, and I, I, yeah, I would think 
that he, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if he was on the monster record, like around that time, like it's all, you know, it would all tie together. Right. Nineties. Yeah. All right. So I guess now we'll kind of get into a little bit of the backstory for file under easy listening. A lot of times you'll see it as fuel. So, you know, sugar, the crazy thing about sugar is they really only existed. I mean, from the point they played their last shows to the point they played their first shows was just shy of three years. Yeah. I think, which is kind of wild because they have three, I mean, two full lengths, a full EP, a crap ton of B sides I know. that are like good B sides. You know, right. we'll, we'll, we'll discuss them separately. They had, all this stuff in a short time and they just toured and toured and toured, which, you know, we'll get into, you know, kind of ended up being there, you know, leading to their demise in a way. Um, and so copper blue comes out September, 1992. Um, and then a mere, you know, six or seven months later, Beaster, uh, which is, you know, a six song EP that comes out in, uh, Easter, April of 93. So, um, you know, as we talked about, I think on the episode with Jeff Dean, they, they recorded Copper Blue and Beaster at the same time, um, but they released them separately. So those records, they did very well, um, you know, hit some charts like Sugar, Sugar was big. Um, you know, it was just a little bit before they were on my radar. They were Biggest, I think, when Copper Blue came out and then Beaster, they were like, you know, just a very popular, playing pretty large capacity venues and, um, you know, just tour, tour, tour. Um, so around the time of right before the Beaster tour, Bob and his partner, Kevin, that I mentioned earlier, they moved to Austin, Texas uh, in 1993. So that move had Bob begin his working relationship with an engineer named Jim Wilson. So the first summer he's in Austin, summer 93, Bob and Jim Wilson record for uh, an album for a band from Athens. <laughs> so there's Athens again <laughs> called Magna Pop um, at Willie Nelson's studio. And then they mix it at Bobby Brown's studio, which is in Atlanta. Wow. And this was kind of like a, a test to see that, you know, how Bob and Jim could work together. Cause I guess Bob was, you know, thinking about recording the next sugar record and wanted to see who, uh, you know, who he would work with. I do wonder what would have happened if he would have stuck with Lou Giordano on this yeah. one. Um, and I wonder why, why? He didn't. I'm, yeah. I'm guessing location wise, because now he was, uh, in Austin and yeah. not, um, and actually, timeline-wise, Lou Giordano may have been busy. He may have been recording the Goo Goo Dolls record, uh, ah. A Boy Named Goo, So, because that came out in early 95. So the timeline kind of syncs up. So, yeah. you know, Bob would often do these, like, so he would, even when he was, you know, ever since he went solo, he would have a band, you know, because he even had a band on Workbook, and he had a band for Black Sheets of Rain. I think it might have been the same band, well, dissect that when yeah. we do those but um he would also do these tours and he still does where he plays solo either acoustic mm -hmm. or electric so he does um 
the solo acoustic shows just to kind of test out the new sugar material. And he said, like, get some money for the holidays, like, you know, just tour around just him and acoustic guitar. Nice. Um, so then by late winter, early spring of 1994, uh, they start preparing for the follow-up record to Copper Blue and Beaster. So um, around this time, Bob sets up a home studio and he's writing and demoing between tours. So David Barb, the bass player for Sugar, comes to Austin to track three songs with Bob that were very high quality demos. So in March, Bob's the keynote speaker at South by Southwest, which is like pretty big deal, probably even back then, right? Yeah, like I saw that and I was like, that's that's a big deal. Like usually right. I know one year it was like Dave Grohl. Right. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty high honor, I think. Yeah, for sure. So then um, at South by Southwest, he plays the demos for Ryko and Creation, and both labels are very pleased with where things are headed. So then after South by Southwest, the band begins recording at Triclop Studio in Atlanta, which was where Smashing Pumpkins ended up doing Siamese Dreams, and Hole had recently finished recording Live Through This. Yeah, I think they wanted to maybe tap into some of that, which makes sense, like tap into that uh that whole era um, yeah. sound so for these sessions at triclops bob is producing and david is it is it barbie or barb i, I, I feel like i've heard both yeah i always said barb but i me could too be dead wrong but I, I could be wrong too but um so if someone knows they can let us yeah. know um so uh D- david is engineering so that's I mean, for, for bands like our band, that's totally normal. That just happens. Like you can have, I mean, we wouldn't even call it producing. Like sometimes bands, they just self-record themselves and engineer. But like, you know, bigger band like Sugar, it is kind of odd because, you know, they talked about how, um, you know, with Bob producing and David engineering, there's not really a, a neutral party to bounce ideas off of, which is what a producer or even another engineer would, would serve that function. Yeah. Because like I know David said something to the effect of it just didn't really work because we were not really being fully honest because you figure you don't want to yell at the guy that's, you know, engineering and then you're going to have to spend six months on tour with them. <laughs> so, right. so, you know, it, there wasn't really that room for, you know, they kind of needed somebody else to step in and say like, Hey, I don't think this sounds good or let's do this again. So, you know, it, it was not very fruitful. They also actually had um, issues with the drum tracks. Um, Malcolm Travis, who's a fantastic drummer. Yes. Uh, they set up in like a, a really big like industrial room and he just couldn't, couldn't hear himself playing. Hmm. Um, I'm not a drummer, but I can imagine that that would just be torture. Um, so the timing just, you know, never, like the feel was never right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it does obviously him a great injustice because he's, he's a great drummer on those yeah. Sugar records. So like we said, recording's not really going that well. And they literally worked for two months. So I'm guessing like around February um, they started. and in early April, they're taking a break. They're watching the news and they see that Kurt Cobain had killed himself. Uh. Um, 
you know, that was in early April of 94. And that kind of just took the wind out of their sails. You know, Bob admitted, he's like, I'm not saying that I was, you know, super close with Kurt. Like I met him. I think he said he met him back in like 86. He met him, which oh, wow. seemed weird. Like in Seattle, I guess he caught a Kurt Cobain been at that time. Like, yeah. Like, I don't know how he would have remembered, but cause Nirvana didn't even exist. Right. In, in 86. But that, that's what he said. He said he met him at um, some show in Seattle. Uh, it was a, you know, Hooskers must have played. And, um, but, you know, he was, people may or may not know, Bob was even on the list of um, people chosen to possibly produce Nevermind. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like Bob said, Nirvana opened the, like he knew he, as much as bands like Nirvana owed to the Hooskers, and their placements and all these other bands that blaze the trail on the flip side, sugar owed a lot to Nirvana for opening that door and making this kind of music, like able to kind of get into the mainstream. So after that, he's they They were just kind of demoralized, you know, between the drumming issues and that. Um, So Bob actually scrapped the recording. Unbelievable. Yeah. He, so two months worth of work, scrapped uh he goes back to austin and at that point he had no idea what they were going to do like are we going to try and fix this up are we going to just uh you know totally just never release it so he calls jim wilson and he's like you know can you help me with this like he gives him the 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 tapes for the recordings uh you know from triclops and Jim said he listened. He was like, it was okay, but he said it was lacking something. Um, so as almost like a symbolic gesture of like tearing it all down and building it back up again, they used the same tapes. They just deleted all the masters from uh, the Atlanta sessions um, and re-recorded, you know, stuff in Austin. The drum, um, they had a smaller drum room and Malcolm nailed it. Yeah. And, you know, Bob even said like he felt kind of bad. Him and David felt kind of bad that they ever, you know, were sort of questioning his ability because it was clearly not his fault. It was, you know, because of the way they were tracking. Cause yeah. he just like, they said he had like blisters on his hands after like he just really nailed it. And you, you can hear it. Yeah. And the way they recorded this was also odd um, because at Jim's suggestion, you know, people that have been in bands or you know learned about recording, they know that usually you track the drums first to a scratch track, and then you you build up on that. But in this way, they basically did it like Bob does his demos. They did it with a drum machine, and then Malcolm came in at the end. Hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Malcolm said that was neat because like you're basically just playing to the record. Yeah. Um, and Jim Wilson said, that's why it has a certain sound. Again, I'm not a drummer, but he said like, you can feel it in the recording. Like that it's, it's not that he's behind the beat, but just basically that like, it's, it's this neat, it has like a swing to it Yeah. because of the fact that they did it backwards. So any drummers that are listening, if you want to comment and say, Oh yeah, I've always noticed that or whatever, yeah. please do. Cause yeah. like I said, I, barely play guitar 
um, I can talk about vocals a little bit, but that's, that's <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Drumming, I have no idea. Yeah. Like anybody that can keep a beat to me is like an amazing drummer. Yeah. Yeah. So they, so they record this in a marathon session. They track 16 songs. So that's, you know, for the album and the B sides, they're working these long hours. Um, you know, as Bob said, they were quote running on nicotine and caffeine. Most days they didn't even stop to eat. So, uh, one anecdote I found funny in Bob's book is he said, after they're done the sessions around two o'clock in the morning, they hit up the only place that's open a drive through, you know, they're in Austin. Mm-hmm. It's called taco cabana, 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 uh, taco cabana. Yeah, I guess cabana, <laughs> yeah. uh, taco cabana. Um, so anybody from Austin, let us know if this place still exists. Yeah. Um, and Bob, Bob would eat four large <laughs> bean and cheese burritos and then go right to sleep for eight hours, wake up and repeat. And he talks about how when, you know, they were done these sessions, basically something that's, I'll admit has happened to me too, where it's almost overnight. You know, he said his pants didn't fit and he just felt real sluggish. And uh, he realized he gained 40 pounds from that. Um, just from eating four bean burritos and going to sleep. I guess he thought he was intermittent fasting, (laughs) but that's not really how it works, Bob. You have to, uh, you still have to regulate your calories. So yeah, I I found that kind of funny, but someone let us know if Taco Cabana still exists in Austin. I've never heard of it. Um, so another, uh, there's a quote from Jim Wilson about the recording of this record, right? So something that always stuck out to me about the album itself is just how the, the wall of sound. So Jim Wilson said, quote, the biggest challenge in that whole thing is keeping all those guitar tracks together, keeping them as loud in the mix as Bob wanted, which tended to overwhelm everything in the mix. He sat next to me in the control room behind the console, which we recorded all the guitar parts in. His amplifiers were all in the room. All four amplifiers turned up all the way. The amount of sound coming out of the speakers was immense. There were at least eight guitar tracks per song, and some of the songs had 16 to 20 guitar tracks. I've got a piece of paper that's quite interesting where he kind of talks about like the times um, on the recording process where Bob made a mistake and they had to punch in. And he said, quote, out of a total of 150 tracks of his guitar, he had to punch in 15 times so it's just like a statement of like what a phenomenal guitar player bob is that's nuts yeah it's like how like we talked about in earlier episodes like husker do what was the grant quote like they had um maybe five second takes unbelievable yeah and like bob you know he's not like a virtuoso guitar player you know like people like he's not in dream theater or something but he just he's so tight and just um you know he's he's just great like like (laughs) and and that's why you know i know they've when he's done solo tours there have been times i never saw him not as a trio i think you may have where he had a second guitar player and he kind of realized like not even to be egotistical but like when we as fans go we just want to hear bob on guitar yeah i i don't want to hear anybody else like getting in the mix like i i want to hear bob on guitar and then you know a bass player and a drummer yeah you know because that's you know it's like with dinosaur jr i don't want to hear a second guitar player with you know <laughs> right exactly like exactly Jay Mascus, you know what i mean so yeah or like when you listen um, to an rem record and you're like all of like all of that guitar work that's all peter buck exactly like so it's 
some bands, obviously the dual guitar works great, but with, you know, stuff like Bob, it's just a testament to how like well-oiled of a machine he is. Yeah. This album, Ryko disc especially was, was really poising for this to be like a big breakout, like copper blue was big, but they were thinking like, okay, this is going to be the one that takes him into the next stratosphere like the label actually like expanded their staff i think or offices or something like that in anticipation of this album oh wow so this you know was interesting for bob i know because the sugar the the copper blue record rather had there wasn't really any expectations he's just like hey i'm gonna put this out and see you know see where it takes me and even beaster there were expectations but he wasn't recording with expectations because it was already done with copper blue so this was the first time where he was going into the studio knowing like i've got to make this one count and we'll get into i think a little bit later with the songs but that might have also been part of the reason why this even though it's, I, I love the album, it's not as, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say it's better than Copper Blue or Beaster. Same. Um, and, and I think that that plays a big part because I think psychologically, like when you don't have any expectations, sometimes it's just, it's, it's a lot more freeing. Not sometimes, it is more freeing. So, uh, so they're also, Ryko's also setting up like a press, you know, press for the album. Because the album's set to come out in September. And I know I, I read somewhere a long time ago, you know, a lot of times, especially back then with college radio, the start of the school year was like the best time for albums to come out. That's why I think a lot of, if you look back, especially at the nineties and the eighties, a lot of stuff came out August, September, you know, because school's starting and that makes sense. People yeah. are playing stuff on the radio. So, you know, they wanted to make sure that this was big. So Spin Magazine and Ryko, I guess, have this conversation that, hey, we're going to send down this uh, a, a gentleman who wrote a lot of like fiction stuff. I don't know. I'm not familiar with his work. But his name is Dennis Cooper. Um, and, you know, they knew, you know, Bob knew that the intention of this, like, so, you know, disclosure, Dennis Cooper is gay. And Bob knew that like, okay, this is like, this is going to be my coming out. Um, you know, and he had, he had different, uh, I guess, thoughts about doing this because, you know, it was one of these things where you always read, like it was sort of like an open secret about Bob's sexuality, but rightfully so. I think it's a very personal thing. Like you can't, you can't force someone into coming out. Yeah. Um, when they, when they don't want to, like, it's just not right. And, you know, he talked about too, that he didn't want, you know, he wanted his music to be universal. He didn't want people to all of a sudden then know, Oh, he's, he's gay. So all these relationship songs are just about like another man. And now I can't relate to it or whatever. Cause you know, they did really universal, you know, he wrote really universal lyrics. Yeah. So he agrees again, you know, out of loyalty, um, you know, almost in like a way that they did flip your wig on SST instead of Warner's. Like he's like, you know what? Like I should do this piece. It's going to be good for the record. 
Raiko's putting a lot into it, so I'll do it. You know, he was worried about fallout a little bit, like his parents. I mean, his parents didn't even really know. Like he Gosh. didn't tell his parents. And yeah. Big Magazine, I mean, back then, Spin was huge. I mean, yeah. you could buy it at 7-Eleven or wherever, and, you know, it was everywhere. Yeah. So he agrees, he agrees to do the interview with uh, Dennis and, you know, it was a t- two days it was going to be like, Hey, we're going to send him down to Austin. He's going to hang out with you and we're going to get an interview. So the first day is really informal. Um, you know, they're just, he's you know, hanging around Austin talking. Um, but then it was the second day where it was the first time Bob ever discussed his sexuality publicly. So he said like the whole mood change tape recorder goes on and, you know, so he begins to open up and afterwards, you know, the interview's done. He kind of thinks, okay, there it is. It's done. And then I guess what would happen is they would get a fax copy before the magazine hit the newsstands and he gets a fax and he's like mortified because, you know, they, they used like a pull quotes, you know, where they'll have like the big, you know, the highlighted yeah. quote. And one of the, you know, the infamous quote from Bob is, I'm not a freak. Oof. So, you know, obviously he's distraught. He's like, I don't want to seem like this self-hating homosexual. But it was taken out of context. What he was trying to say is like, hey, I'm just like a normal guy. Like I'm not some, you know, not to a <laughs> Seinfeldian. Not yeah. that there's anything wrong with that. But, you know, he wasn't like somebody that was like, all flamboyant and, you know, screaming and yelling at pride parades and whatnot. Again, nothing wrong with that. But Bob was trying to, you know, basically just say like, Hey, I'm just like a a dude wearing a t-shirt and jeans playing loud rock music. Right. And that, but the, and that quote specifically at that time in his like public announcement about his sexuality seen out of context by a reader just is not a really delicate way to, for the publication to have handled that. Exactly. I think it was really shitty actually. Yes. Of, of the magazine and of the, of the journalist. Cause he's confiding of like a, in confiding in them, like a personal thing and, in, and, and permitting them to make that public. And, and that's why in hindsight with everything after this, um, I love seeing Bob just comfortable with himself. Um, You know, that's, and we'll talk more, especially about when we get to like modulate how, you know, he really came into his own. He he accepted who he was. And I just think, I mean, you got to think 1994, he was like 33 or 34 years old, like having to go that long with not being, you know, being able to be true to yourself is, that's tough, man. Like I, I can't imagine it. So, you know, I'm super happy for Bob where he's at in life uh, now and everything. But yeah, so he's obviously incensed. That's the right word, right? Yeah. And like very understandably. (laughs) Yeah. He's like really upset about this article. So he, he noted that he didn't speak to spin for 15 years after this. Like can't blame him. He um, was really pissed and he, I think even when the facts came, he called and he's like, you can't publish this. And they're like, it's too late. It's like going to press. And he said like, there was a little bit of fallout. He said like some Southeastern, you know, in the Bible belt 
some radio stations uh, pulled the singles. Um, and he even said, he's like, you know, this, this is a testament to Bob. He was like, I understand it. You know, you got to do what you got to do. Like somebody reads this article and they're advertising and, you know, they're in the, in the Bible belt, especially they, they're going to be like, no, I'm not advertising on this show that plays this artist. Yeah. So, you know, the, they, um, pulled their stuff and he said like his parents, he's at the time, um, when his book was written, he said his, his mom. So he said his mother kind of always knew. Um, and his father has never acknowledged his homosexuality, right. which is also just kind of sad. But at the same time, I'm, I'm assuming that at some point peace was made because I know like he dedicated both, you know, um, beauty and ruin, I think was for his mom's passing. And then, patch this guy for his dad or, or vice versa. Yeah. Um, I still think he, you know, he was close and his dad, you know, to his dad's credit, um, going a little off topic, but I know like his dad like supported him being in the band. Like he drove out the Husker do van from upstate New York to Minneapolis to give to Bob and um, stuff like that. But yeah, yeah, so that was, that was kind of, you know, that was kind of the beginning of the end, really this spin interview. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, so after that, they film a couple videos, they, they do a video for your favorite thing and they do one for believe what you're saying. Um, and they go out on a tour. I think they do Europe and UK first. And then around November, they, um, do the U S and then after a show in Connecticut, um, I think that was another, you know, sign towards the end. Right, Jude. Yeah. Yeah. So it starts to kind of fall apart. So Dave, Dave Barb, Barbie, Barb. So um, on that tour, so Dave Barb uh, pulls Bob aside and he tells him that he's got to slow down. He suggests that they replace him on bass. So the band is causing family trouble for him. He's got like two young kids at this point. Um, so they don't tell Mal Malcolm Travis or the band's crew. They just kind of try to figure out what their next steps are. And then from what I understand, it was kind of unceremonious. Bob puts out a press release on behalf of the band saying that they're taking a quote indefinite break. Um, and from the liner notes of Merge's reissue of file under easy listening, it sounds like Malcolm um, found out that way. Does that add up for you, Greg? Yeah. Bob said to something to the effect of like, he never knew how to end a relationship. Yeah. Like he, I mean, even this was, I know you mentioned with Grant songs, like I, the master of the Irish goodbye, yeah. like in a way, like he pulled the Irish goodbye. I mean, in reading the story and it's, it's in a lot of detail in Bob's book, you know, David comes up and he basically says like, I have two young kids, my wife's getting really frustrated. I'm missing first steps and I'm yeah. missing, you know, all these moments. Um, my kids are acting out and anybody who's a parent, you know, a working parent. Cause I mean, that's, that's what, David was, he's a working parent. His yeah. job just happened to be, he's, he doesn't come home at five o'clock. Right. Um, knows that it can be, it can be very frustrating when it lands on the other partner. And Bob, a testament to Bob is he was just like, yeah, I, I can totally understand that. And, you know, your okay. family's your priority. And like I said, at the top of the episode, they were going, 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 going. They never stopped mm -hmm. from, early 92 until then barely any breaks it was just 
tour, record, tour, record, tour, record. Now they're on tour, you know, something like that. And, um, yeah, it got to be a lot. And he, they didn't literally, I think only Kevin knew Bob, David, that might honestly be it. There might be another person or two that knows yeah, uh, that knew at the time. So yeah, Malcolm was really, um, pissed off. Understandable. Yeah. And him and David had a falling out because of this. I mean, it sounds like they eventually, uh, got, you know, worked in their relationship and became friends again, but yeah. Like I think David, doesn't David play on a couple tracks on body of song? I um, think so. Yeah. Cause I think that was what made me get that record. Cause I loved, I was like, Oh wow. They got the sugar. He's got the bass player from sugar on here. Um, I think, Maybe I'm making this up, but I feel like when, when he did the Copper Blue anniversary tour, he had apparently reached out to Malcolm and, and David, um, but schedule-wise, it didn't work out. Yeah. I don't know if that's – because I think it uh, – yeah, it might, it might be, like, what and the planning stages, and then he ended up getting his band now, which he's had, you know, for almost a decade. Yeah that are a great band, but you know, like, like I talked about earlier too, what we talked about sugar was really popular. Um, so this record coming out and then them, you know, basically breaking up, I mean, not publicly, but breaking up two months after the record comes <laughs> out, no, November's two months. It, it's kind of funny to think that when I got this CD for Christmas, they were already done. Like, I know that's crazy. Like, um, I'm, you know, getting into it, and the band is is effectively broken up. Like they're on, yeah. t- they might have ended tour by that point because it was Christmas, um, and then they did a final Japanese tour in January of '95. So really, that was the only thing keeping them. They they would have broken up in less than if they would have stopped in November. It would have yeah. been like less than three years, you know. Um, and they do the because you know Bob said, hey. I'm all for it, but let's do, you know, cause his work ethic, you know, we all know Bob's ethics. Uh, he was like, let's finish everything that we have booked. And David was like, okay, this is great. Like I have a light at the end of the tunnel so I can tell my wife like, right. Hey, after this date, I'm free. I'm done. So yeah. So that was, that was the end of sugar. Um, I feel like I remember hearing when they broke up um, and being like, Oh wow. Cause like the besides record came out. Yeah. Um, so, but just kind of to, to, you know, give a little perspective too on how big sugar was from the, this is from the merge 2012, uh, liner notes for file under easy listening, Alan McGee, you know, uh, who's president of creation records. He says they were a band. It was a moment and music moved on. The Brit pop thing happened and they got kind of left behind but there was always a lot of love from us to them and from them to us. I think sugar are one of the bands that everybody has forgotten that were ever on creation, which right, which I, said, I didn't even, I didn't yeah. even know. Um, he says, everybody goes on about primal scream and Oasis, which is fair enough. But at one point sugar were out selling every fucker on that label. <laughs> and it's true. Like they sugar was massive. And I do think, 1994 was an interesting time because like after, you know, Kurt Cobain's passing, um, 
Green Day hit big. Like Foo Fighters were about a year away, which, you know, <laughs> we see they took sugar, the ball, the sugar yeah. passed them and ran with it. It would have been a good time, I think, for sugar. Like, yeah, Britpop was happening and you had Oasis. First record came out in 94, which was massive. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and all that stuff, Blur, you know, all that stuff was getting big. I, I think there was a place for Sugar in 1994. Um, and I do wonder what it would have been like in an alternate universe where this record had maybe had a couple different tracks come out and been huge. Yeah. Yeah. So then by 95, Bob's already, the band's done and Bob's working on the self-titled, the Hubcap record which is an awesome record, which we'll talk about in a different yeah. episode. Yeah, you do wonder like, if any of those songs would have translated to Sugar. I, I'll, maybe when we revisit it, I'll, I'll listen with that mindset. So yeah, on to the songs, I guess, right? That's yeah. what makes the record. Yeah. So, so track off, one. Yeah, lead but, off track, Gift. So what are your uh, thoughts, Greg? I mean, this is an incredible opening song. I know. Um, and... I'm not privy to all the guitar technology, so I'm going to leave that to you. But this one, you can clearly hear that My Bloody Valentine influence on that. What is that effect he's using? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It just sounds like it's like 14 guitars that are all playing. I don't, it just sounds like it's like a, like 14 guitars. Yeah. Um, with guitars like a, on guitars. Right. Exactly. With like a ton, a ton of distortion on it. It's such a good song. Like to me, yeah. like that should have been a single. I know. It, well, to the, my bloody Valentine, like influence, it sounds like, you know, almost like he's directly paying homage to the riff in the song. You never should off. Isn't anything. And I never like, obviously because it's Bob and ways that we talked about in an earlier episode, how Husker Du is influential to um, the early shoegaze scene. Um, it almost seems like it's, it, it's just like one master chef making the recipe of another master chef. It's like when you watch like great British baking show or something like that. And you're like, Whoa, this like brilliant chef's about to make this crazy Paul Hollywood thing or something like that. Like, and I love, I love the way it's like my bloody Valentine took from, the Hooskers, you know, and, and the shoegaze scene took from like, you know, like we talked about on another episode, like eight miles high, like I think was like a, a, a really influential thing to, you know, that, that whole scene because it was like taking the 60s psychedelic filtering it through like this distorted punk rock um, filter. Yeah, fil- you filter. Well, you, I guess you do filter through a filter, but you know, <laughs> what I, you know what I mean. Like looking at it in this different way, and then to have Bob come out, you know, with Copper Blue, which you know, again, well, I can't wait to talk about that one. I know. Um, where he's tipping the hat to My Bloody Valentine and the Pixies. The Pixies yeah. also, you know, borrowed from Who's Could Do. So it's just a nice kind of passing of the baton. Mm-hmm. So track two, we have company book. So this is interesting because it isn't uh, a song written by or, or sung by Bob, uh, David Barbie or, or Barb, depending on what the correction we, <laughs> we get is. Uh, this is his song. I, to me, this song is a B side. 
Which really? I know some people, yeah, I know some people huh. are like, like, no way. It just, it kind of kills the flow a little bit for me. Like, it's not bad, but there's David B-sides that I would replace with this song. And again, we'll, we'll save that for the B-sides episode. Yeah. But like one of the more like up-tempo, faster, like punkier songs. It's, like I said, it's, it's cool, but I would have rather had another track that is very interesting to me um especially because we're we're often like so on the same page with that stuff i think this is just such a killer mid-tempo song i think that uh i think that it really effectively helps pace the record right because gift is like this really like kind of fast um and then company book is this slower more mid-tempo song um one thing that always stands out to me about this song is not only the the wall of guitars but the drumming so in the bob book in Bob's autobiography. Um, he describes Malcolm Travis's drumming as quote, like someone throwing a house at you with each hit, right? Which is like very different than Grant's like looser kind of jazz influenced style of drumming. And um, I think this song in my mind really displays that. I, I, I'm not a drummer by any means, but I can kind of hear like what you were saying earlier about how they did the click track and then he came back and then did the drums last to line it up. Cause there's something that's just so forcefully heavy about this song in particular. Um, it always stuck out to me that in the merge reissue um, in the picture there that they have of Malcolm Travis, his fingers are taped up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like he, he excellent drummer um, yeah. and totally what I like is that like sugar, it, Sugar as a band was not Husker Du. I mean, it's different. You yeah. can hear that it's the same guy, but it's it's got a different style. It's a lot tighter. Husker Du was a lot looser. Not saying Grant, Grant was an incredible drummer for what yeah. he was doing, but just a whole different style. Mm-hmm. So track three, your favorite thing. So your favorite thing might be the first Sugar song I heard, like I talked about. It's a great one. Um and it's it's a classic bob track three song um like we talked about and like i know bob's mentioned he always likes to put the key track as number three um it has a little bit of a helpless from copper blue vibe to it to yeah me. um I can hear that. but it's a great song like it's clearly definitely like one of the highlights um you know, awesome song. And it has uh, some similarities again to my bloody Valentine, the song blown a wish off of loveless. Great song. Uh, Amazing record. Yeah. It follows that, you know, similar lyric and similar uh, like pattern. And I'm, I'm assuming that was done intentionally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like with this and with gifts, like I, I, I almost like, it's like when like a hip hop record, like samples something, you know what I mean? They're like drawing on it to kind of like, be like yo this is really cool um, yeah like an east it's like an easter egg which yeah is funny because this isn't beaster but <laughs> right <laughs> but but it is it's like a little like something to find out later and and i didn't you know i got this record in 1994 um i didn't hear loveless until probably 1998 so to you know yeah a couple years later hear it and be like hey wait a second yeah huh. then, you, know, you realize so that's kind of cool yeah yeah obviously the the my bloody valentine connection um kind of a general note 
the I, I often like think a lot about the lyrics of the album and like I know in earlier episodes it's something that I always end up talking about when we do the song by song breakdown. Um, but I almost don't know or don't care about what any of the songs on this album are about. Like kind of to what you were saying earlier about the general appeal that Bob was going for in a lot of the songs that he wrote. Um, you know, obviously the song is titled Your Favorite Thing. I feel like this could be about anything and everything and that's awesome about it kind of like a like a shoegaze record like a my bloody valentine record yeah just a catchy song yeah you know like you're you're gonna be humming you know you'll be humming it for days after you hear it um it still endures to this day like i don't get tired of hearing it Uh i i believe i've seen him play it a couple times like it's just a great track yeah track four so what you want it to be. So this one, uh, this is like a slower tempo one that I, I enjoy. And I don't know if maybe it's just cause it's Bob or what, but um, it's, it's a nice, you know, after coming up from the upbeat, uh, your favorite thing to go into this more mid tempo track, a little bit more, I don't want to say darker, but it's like not as poppy, you know? Yeah. Um, it's good. Um, it's not like my favorite song on the record, but it's catchy. Like it's in my head now because I mentioned the song. So that's a good sign. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And like, I think that they really nailed the um, pacing on side A of this record. Right. So like side track one is like pretty fast. Track two is like kind of slower mid tempo. Track three is fast. Track four is slower and mid tempo. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good. And then we're wrapping up side A next. Mm -hmm is G Angel, which was actually the third single from the album. Um, you know, I mentioned they filmed two, uh, two videos um, for Your Favorite Thing and for Believe What You're Saying. This video was put together after they knew they were, well, after Bob knew they were breaking up, I think, because it didn't even come out until 1995. So I actually have a funny story about this video. You know, like Jude said, this is pre being able to go on YouTube or Google. So I remember my brother went, you know, we went shopping with my mom and he was at Sears and they would play like videos on the um, TVs when you'd walk by and stuff. And he came home. He's like, there's a sugar video for G Angel. He's like, but it's like Looney Tunes and stuff. And I was literally like, you're lying. Like, I didn't believe it. I'm like, no. And I'd never seen it because I, you know I guess Ryko too didn't really push it after the band uh, was ending. And he like for years, like it was like, I don't know if that's Mandela effect or something, whatever. But I was like, no, this doesn't (laughs) exist. And then like when I got, when I was introduced to YouTube, I didn't work for five days straight. Now remember Michael Scott. (laughs) (laughs) When I was introduced to YouTube, I um, found this video and I was like, Oh wow, he was right. Like it's yeah. got cartoons in it. Yeah. Um to me, I mean this the song. Let's talk about the song. I mean, great song. Again, yeah. I'm not really good with interpret like I don't really know what necessarily the song's about. Yeah. But it's just a great fuzzy pop song. Um and to me, this song's like the template for Foo Fighters. Like color and the shape was just, you know, Dave Grohl trying to capture this song. Like this could, this should have been as big as Everlong. Like yeah. in, in my universe or, or bigger. 
Um, it's an awesome song. I don't think Bob really plays it anymore. Like Sugar Play, it's on the live record. I remember, I forget why. I think the, I think he said like even the the guitar work was a little complicated. I I don't know. We'll have to research that. But I remember yeah. he gave a reason why like it's not really played much. But yeah, I wish it was because I love it. Because it's awesome. Yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, kind of like you were saying a second ago about like it's not really clear what the song is about, and I almost like don't care. It's just such an amazing song. This side A of this record is like, um, like driving on like a super sunny day with the windows down in the car. Like the stereo's up, but like maybe parts of what you're hearing on the stereo, you can't really hear, but you don't care because like the, the melody and the rhythm are so good. Um, other thoughts about this, that video is amazing. If anybody's listening and hasn't seen it, just Google uh, G Angel video and it's, it's hilarious, yeah. yeah. It's fun. The clip at the beginning of the video, um, which is not obviously on the recording of the song, but it's at the beginning of the video. There's like, you know, kind of this like found footage of these two like kind of scientist type dudes in suits um, where he's, the guy's like, there's like some machine and he's like, Bill, turn this machine on, will you? This is an actual recording of the electrical impulse going through a living eye to a living brain. Um, it reminds me of the clip at the beginning of Lifetime's uh, uh, turnpike gates on Jersey's best dancers. They're like this to play this. In order song, for you to, in order yeah. for you to tune to this record, in order <laughs> for you to play to this record, you yeah. must tune your guitar to ours. Let's start with the first string. Yeah, exactly. I definitely see that. Um, which actually, that record was a couple of years after this. Yeah, they're fan. They're Bob Moore. Right. I mean, they covered Who's Could Do. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it planted a little seed there. Could be. So that's the end of side A. And then we flip over to side B with uh, Panama City Motel. What are your thoughts on this one, Greg? Every time this song starts, I think that my phone switched it to Beaster. Because <laughs> to me, it sounds like come around. Like yeah. uh, the same, you know, just for like a, a minute and then it goes into something else. Um, I like it. It's... Uh, you know, Bob, Bob talked to in, in his book, and I believe even in the, the liner notes for the album reissue about how there were three types of songs that were written for this record. There were the pop songs, which are, you know, the first side of the record. There were faster, like more punkier songs that ended up being B sides. And there were these acoustic based songs that are side two. And, it's not what's cool is that and we'll we'll mention it later too about the acoustic stuff, but this side definitely is more on the downbeat with the you know acoustic guitar, but it's not like this jarring difference where um you know it's like one side is just loud and abrasive and the other side's super soft and quiet like it's yeah. it's it's a little more subtle than that, but um yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good song. It's um, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Pretty much all I have to say. It's a good song. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. There's kind of like a, a different dynamic, but like uh, side A, my war, side B, my war, where you're like, okay, like side A is like these kind of faster songs, and side B is these like kind of like the mood changes when you switch, flip the record over. Yeah. Um, 
it's no, I always think about how when you hit side B of this record, that's when Bob busts out the acoustic. Um, and like you were saying, like there's still like some distorted guitar parts in the acoustic songs on side B, um, but they're primarily driven. Or excuse me, there's still some electric guitar parts in the acoustic songs on side B, but they're still driven by the acoustic guitar in my mind. And every song has it except for Granny Cool. Yeah, yeah, it does. And you know what? what's interesting is I never, I don't want to say I didn't notice, but I never paid attention until reading Bob's book and being like, oh yeah, it really is like kind of a different feel. You know, because again, we're, we're coming from the CD era too, where sides weren't a thing. Right. You know, so. Especially when you got your CD at the dollar store at the Deptford Mall after a one-up <laughs> band practice. Yeah. yeah, like there wasn't, like you just played the, the, the 10 tracks. And you do wonder, you know, and Bob, I know, wonders this, if he would have chosen some different tracks, how this would have played out. We'll yeah. get to that in a minute. Um, so next is Can't Help You Anymore. I love this one. Um, it's like upbeat, catchy. It has the do 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 do, and you know, cool chorus. Um, and it just this is another one that just gets in your head. It's almost like a nursery rhyme. Yeah, yeah, I love. I I'm with you on that. Like I really the do 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 the do 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 always stuck out to me. Also the ethereal My Bloody Valentine esque like ooze in the chorus. Yes, it seemed like another. Uh, my bloody Valentine through line with this record to contradict my earlier self, what I'd said about the lyrics on this one, the one, the lyrics on this song do stand out to me um, a little bit, which makes it a distinct track on the record for me. The, um, the one lyric, I don't care if you're upset. I'm trying to forget. I feel like walking out. I don't want to talk it out. I know that the band kind of started to fizzle out um, after the recording of this, but I, I wonder if some of that is playing out or if that's, sort of about a different relationship. Yeah, what is it? Life, life imitating art. Right. Yeah, no, I, I'll have to pay more attention to the lyrics on this one. I just get so caught up in the do-do-do-do that I don't yeah. anything else. <laughs> um, I think I might have snorted too. Sorry about that. <laughs> We're uh, a home, so, homegrown podcast here. Yeah. So up next is Granny Cool. This song's heavy. I know. Um, it's uh, might be controversial, controversial, but to me, it's a, this is like a B-side track. Um, I can see that. It, but the riff is definitely heavy. Yeah. 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 Is this, uh, is this song about us, like old people trying to act cool? <laughs> yeah, right? But that, yeah, that riff is just like a friggin' sledgehammer with like combined with Malcolm Travis's drums. For some reason, I always thought that this was like a David song and I don't know why, like when I was younger, I mean. Yeah. Like, cause maybe the effects on Bob's vocal or, you know, just, and at that point not being as in tune to his style. So like, for some reason it always like, I'm always shocked when I hear Bob singing it. Like when it comes on, like still, like 26 <laughs> years later, I'm like, oh yeah, it's not David singing. I don't know why. I don't know. And this is probably unfair to David, but I wonder if I'm like, oh, it's not one of my highlights. So it must be him. So oh. <laughs> like, like Bob, Bob, Bob wouldn't do this, but it's not a bad, like I said, none of these are bad songs. I just think that um, 
company book and and this. I, I wonder if these would have been replaced with some uh, B sides um, and kind of reintegrated into the track list. Yeah, uh, how the album would have been. And uh, so when we do the uh, besides episode, um, I want to have that in mind and see what two songs I would pick to um, replace these. So we'll have to remember that. Yeah. So next up we have Believe What You're Saying. Yeah, so this one, uh, another single, much more downbeat than your favorite thing. Yeah. Um, this is like proto, maybe not even proto because at this point it was a thing, but it's like alt country. Yeah. And, and Bob basically said like, hey, I was in Austin. What do you, what do you expect? You know? Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have a song like this. Like I gotta, I'm here. Right. I'm in Rome. Um, good song. Yeah. 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 It's like definitely got like a, an old country feel. And he, he admits that there's like the twangy guitar and the song. Like, I think there's, he even talks like explicitly about heartache in the song. There's that old joke. What do you get if you play a country song backwards? Do you know that one? No, I don't. You get your job back, you get your truck back, you get your dog back. <laughs> but, yeah, that, um, it, it definitely has that feel. And like, I think, isn't even the video like in the desert? I think so, yeah. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely like alt country, but it's it's one of these instances where he's trying something and, and it works. You know, yeah. like he, he tried it and it's, it's a good song. Like, yeah. Um, I, again, another one that I don't believe I've ever seen him uh, do. Um, in fact, I, like I said, I think the only track I've ever seen him play off of this album when he's doing these, you know, song tours from all his song books is your favorite thing. Yeah. So finally we're at the last track. Um, and this is, uh, called explode and make up. Yeah. Uh, another, just a classic Bob mold closing track. Um, and this is the last song that he tracked vocals for when recording as well. Um, and you can feel it like you can, you can hear it and, and feel it when you listen to the song. Um, and after recording, Bob said something to the effect of like, I hate the person who wrote that song. Hmm. And then it was just so such a heavy experience for him that he ended up going and sitting alone in the kitchen area of the studio for a couple hours without talking to anybody. And I think about that every time I hear it and you can definitely like, you're like, yeah, I, I, I see that. Yeah. And the live version on the, um, that was a B side or part of the extra tracks or something. It was, is great too. Yeah. So I was actually surprised. Like it's, it almost, it seems like one of those songs that's so heavy, like emotionally, like he wouldn't play it live. So I was kind of surprised to see that it was in set list, which is kind of cool. So what are your, th what are your thoughts on uh, Explode Makeup? Yeah, what a downer of a closer. Yeah, what a downer of a closer. It just always reminded me of um, the kind of down more downbeat acoustic songs on Candy Apple Grey, like Too Far Down or Hardly Getting Over It. It's a great song. I can't say it's my favorite one just because like side A of this record is really like upbeat. And this song, I, I think it's awesome, but it's not the song that I reach for when I listen to this record, partly because it's like 
such a bummer. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of favorites, what what is your favorite thing on uh, File Under Easy Listening? A, a, an apparently controversial pick. I'm going to say Company Book. I just wish that like. Um, I think it's such an awesome song. I don't know what it's about. I think like all of the guitar work in it is like completely hypnotic. I could listen to it all day long. Yeah. It's just one of my favorite songs on the record. Cool. Did you, there's the, and it does, it sounds cool live. Like in the, there's the bonus yeah. album um, that was included with B sides. And then later came as a MP3s on the vine when you got the vinyl or maybe on the deal. And it, I think it's on the deluxe, but, um, Mine, you know, I have, so, all right, I'm going to, I'm not going to cheat, but I'm going to give you the four songs that, that are contenders so that I can tell you what the one is. Sounds, okay. it's fair. Um, because just, just to give you an idea where I'm coming from, uh, fair enough. To, to put into context. So it, for me, it's between gift, your favorite thing, G angel, and a controversial one here, Explode and Make Up. Huh. So I wanted to, you know, as much as I want to say Explode and Make Up lately, just because I feel like when I was when I was younger, a lot of times, well, th- this wasn't on tape for me, but I would always listen to this first side of a record and then like some stuff I would never get to the B side because a lot of albums were like front loaded, right? Yeah. So like if this was on cassette, I may have never heard the beast <laughs> until I was older, but you know, since it was a CD, I did, but I feel like explode and make up was like a late discovery for me. Um, you know, later in life as in the past, say maybe even around the time of this reissue that said, I don't want to lie. I don't want to like cool guy, you know, for me and be like, well, actually it's, uh, but, um, I'm going to say gift. Gift is the one I always go back to. Um, it leads off the record. Yeah. It, um, I feel like sometimes when I don't know what I want to listen to, I'll just poke around, uh, you know, sh- the sugar catalog and gift is one of the first songs I always play. Um, I just, I love it. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's a good record. Just a little misunderstood in, in the pantheon of sugar stuff. Um, and that's because it's, not as good as Copper Blue or Beaster. Yeah, but side A of this record, man, is so good. Yeah, well, I I would I wish that you know I don't know that I feel like can't help you anymore could have been yeah. on side A. Yeah, I, like I, I, mm-hmm. I like I almost feel like like Company Book could have been on side B, but that's yeah. neither here nor there because. I don't have a time machine, so I can't go back and <laughs> and convince them of you know what I think their track list should be. <laughs> so it is what it is. So yeah, so company book for you, and then gift for you. Gift for me. Gift is the right answer. Like that's such a good opening track. But like I said, ex- explode and make up. I, I I love. Like it's it's tough. And G Angel, I do too. But there's just something about Gift where it just it checks every single box for me. Yeah. Um, He's so good at the, just his whole career at the like track one and like first track, last track. Yeah, he really is. Um, that's why I'm really excited too to hear the new one. So, yeah, well, you know, that, that's it for this week. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, and we are looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock. 
So for episode eight, we're going to do another interview. Uh, this time it will be about the replacements and it's going to be with my friend, uh, Sal Canestra. Uh, I know Sal through another one through the Dag Nasty message board. Apparently everything in my life goes back to Dag Nasty. Um, <laughs> he's been in some cool bands. He was in the band sleeper, uh, from Staten Island. I think Staten Island. Sorry if I'm wrong. Uh, <laughs> that turned into Serpico uh, that ended up having some records on Equal Vision Records. Um, Sal, was, Sal was in an early lineup, I think, bef before they turned to Serpico. Um, he was in a band called The Jarens, uh, which had post, a post-Dag Nasty. There's Dag Nasty. Again. Yeah. Uh, Peter Kortner on vocals. and uh, Great band name. I'm a... <laughs> It's yeah. a grammar, grammar guy. Yeah. A well, Peter Cortner is an English teacher, I believe. Oh, nice. For like a middle school or something. Cool. Um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody. And uh, Being a like, middle school teacher is cool for my gerund folks out there. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and then uh, played in a band called The 13 uh, that had a record a couple years ago that was really cool. Um, that was actually, I believe, mixed and mastered by Stefan Egerton from Descendants oh, wow. and All. So there's that SST connection again. Um, and I think he currently he has a, some solo stuff that's really cool on a, on a band camp. And we'll talk about that when he's on. But I'm really looking forward to that one. Uh, mm -hmm. He's a great guy. And I know he's a fan of the pod. Um, and he, the replacements are his, I think, I think he can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the replacements and the who are like his, his favorites. Um, and he saw the replacements a bunch in the 80s. Um, so that's going to be really fun. So awesome. Stick around for that. Sounds great. Take care folks. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye. And so, uh, you probably hope you can.